Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Kyle. And uh, this month we were covering um, Irish films, Irish actors. Uh, but today we're going to take a little sidetrack over to uh, some films about Troy... Well, a, a film about Troy Duffy and two directed by Troy Duffy films. Now, Trevor, Troy Duffy is not Irish. Um, however, he's from Boston, which has a, a large Irish population, from what I understand. Uh, but his movies um, are focused on Irish, quote-unquote Irish uh, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the actors themselves are not. Um, and by, by films, of course, you're talking about the exactly two film productions this man has been affiliated with. Yes, so if, if you're not familiar, Troy Duffy is a... He's a Boston native, and he moved to West Hollywood. Oh, he lived in West Hollywood, Hollywood, and was working at a bar, an Irish bar, Jay Sloan's. I'm not sure if it's still there. Um, and he managed to sell a script to uh, Miramax, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, right. And apparently, Harvey Weinstein himself walked into Jay Sloan's and signed a deal with Duffy. Because they were so impressed by his script. Now, before we jump into this uh, too deep, I wanted to say at the top, the reason why we're doing this um, is because I've been fascinated with the Boondock Saints 2 movie. Um, I don't know about you, Trevor, but when I first watched the Boondock Saints movie, I was about, oh, 17 or 18, which was several years after it had come out. It's kind of the perfect age to watch that movie. It's the only age to watch that movie. Yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> like, between the age of 13 and not even 18, like 17, I think, is... And you have to be a dude. Yeah, you have to be a dude. <laughs> um, uh, I watched it, and I found it enjoyable at the time, and I'd seen it a few times afterwards. Uh, mostly as kind of a, a drinking movie, just kind of hanging out, watching it. Um, there's also a lot of smoking in the movie, which I was a smoker at the time, which is... Very nice. Um, and I actually, I think I revisited it uh, maybe a, a couple years ago. And it's not great, but it's still, I think, watchable. Um, mm. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the second movie, you will be soon. It is almost unwatchable. It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, and it's fascinatingly bad. Um, script, the acting, uh, the messages in the movie are... Whew, uh, <laughs> muddled to say the least um, ish yeah and for me i i get where you're coming from because uh i a lot of my friends actually like look at me cockeyed sometimes when i tell them some of the movies i watch uh because i don't know like i don't know if i have a bit of a masochistic streak <laughs> but uh <laughs> um i subject myself to a lot of crap um knowingly <laughs> uh, and it's because uh because of this internet culture that we have where uh, film productions are much more transparent than they once were, uh, oftentimes I'll find myself reading up on troubled productions or uh, productions that were uh, headed by incompetent people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wonder who I might to be home here, Trevor. To. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's kind of the subject of the day. But um, I find myself reading about those those stories, and it makes me want to actually see the product so i so i can see like i can do the math and and actually see how those problems manifested in the finished product because film is is one of those things that hundreds of human hands touch it it's it's not 
the product of a single human will. There's a lot of there's a lot of problems that can occur during a film production that can get hammered out dur- down the line. Um, even with somebody like Troy Duffy at the helm. <laughs> um, but yeah, like movies like Batman versus Superman. Before that came out, I was like, this sounds bad, but in like a fascinating way. And now I'm curious about Boondock Saints too, because I still, as of as of recording, I haven't watched it yet. But you've always told me that it's it's bad in 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 a way that just grips you and it makes you just squint and try to figure out what the hell is going on here. <laughs> I mean, it's no Saint Elmo's Fire. Don't get me wrong. That that movie's special. That's a masterpiece bad. of of fascinatingly bad cinema. <laughs> it really is a masterpiece. Uh, There's layers to it. <laughs> I actually, the first time I saw Boondock Saints 2, I saw Boondock Saints 2 in the theater because uh, there was literally nothing else to do and I fell asleep. Uh, I think my friend and I took... Actually, I remember now, uh, we were in Hawaii, and uh, this was after deployment, and I was, I think I was underage at the time, I can't remember for sure, and we took beers to the movie theater, and a buddy of mine went and watched it, and uh, <laughs> uh, we we got back to the ship, I had fallen asleep during the movie, I'm like, I don't even know where I fell asleep, it was just boring, and I got back to the ship, and my friend Eric had been at the same movie, he's like, was that you snoring in the theater? He wasn't even with us. I'm like, yeah, that was me. He's like, dude, that movie, he, he didn't like it either. But he's like, dude, you can't fall asleep in a theater. Like, that's fucking rude. <laughs> Shame on you. Yeah, apparently I was snoring in the theater. It was so boring. There was like six of us in there, I'm pretty sure. Well, what's really funny, and, and this is skipping way ahead, but I, I just feel like I need to throw it out there right now, is after having watched this documentary uh, called Overnight, about Troy Duffy, um, at the conclusion of the film, the thing that came to mind was, uh, how did Boondock Saints 2 get greenlit? Right! So that's why I wanted... I'm, I'm really excited to go back and watch it, because when you watch Boondock Saints without seeing this documentary overnight, you're like, eh, it's an okay movie. I honestly, knowing how like how it went to try to make this thing, and who they had to deal with to make this thing. I'm like, mm-hmm. it's actually really impressive, I think. I want to go back and watch it and be like, I think it's pretty incredible how they got it greenlit. Well, I mean, by the time we get to the end of, of Mr. Duffy's story in this documentary, uh, all signs point to him having been blacklisted in Hollywood and just being no good at the movie business. And the the only explanation that... that I can process at this moment is that DVD sales for Boondock Saints and VHS sales and uh, television rights and stuff uh, were astronomical, which I, I get. Um, I could totally see. It's it's like the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie. <laughs> the movie, I don't know that it did well in theaters, but on DVD, tons of people bought it. Same with the Tom Jane Punisher movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Boondock Saints, based on some of the people I grew up with, probably did pretty well. <laughs> um but the, the one thing that jumps out at me, though, is, yeah, I could see a, a sequel being greenlit on DVD sales for sure. But not with Troy Duffy at the helm. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe he had a, a interesting contract or something that required any any potential for sequels or future productions to have him involved. I think maybe he fan-funded the second movie. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's that. what happened. Yeah, I could, yeah. Um, I mean, what year was that? Like 2007? I, uh, yeah, I was underage, so it was like 2008 or 2009 is when the second one came out. I want to say 2009 is when it came out. 
I'm trying to look for my phone. <laughs> I oh, can't good. find my phone. <laughs> I can't find my phone because I'm using it right I'm now using to it call right my now. friend to do a fucking podcast. Yeah, that's exactly why I can't find my phone. I was going to look up what year it came out. You're going to have to look that up for me because I can't. It came out it. in 2009. Yeah, okay, because that was 20. Uh, at the so time. That, that would be. Sense. Yeah, that makes sense because I think didn't the first one come out in 99? Yeah. So we're yeah. going for an anniversary date. Oh, and 1999 is an important date. So yeah, so this one, because this is a documentary, uh, we're not really going to be going through this linear. We're not going to be going just straight through. I will. I do want to comment on the documentary scope. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important an important thing to keep in mind when talking about this. So uh, just to kind of, at the top, this was directed by, I didn't get their last names, but um, I caught it when I was kind of glossing over the, the documentary again, uh, Tony and Mark. Now, when Troy sold this script to uh, Weinstein and uh, Miramax, apparently, he grabbed his whole crew, and this was friends and his brother. Um, while he's trying to get this movie greenlit, he is also trying to get his band, uh, The Brood, signed. Uh, and he's kind of tackling two things at once. Did his brother, uh, I don't know if you've seen Underworld, oh, um, Priest. Priest from Blade 2. His brother looks like Priest from Blade 2. Uh, he, he does. Very yeah, much so. <laughs> so much so. Like, it was ridiculous. I thought he looked just like him. Um, so he has Tony and Mark, who are, um, I guess, just friends, but they're managing the band, and they're supposed to be developing projects. That's what they've the task they've been assigned with. And they're filming a documentary while they're doing this now i don't know what the motivation was behind the documentary maybe they were just doing for behind the scenes footage and it just turned into wow troy's a piece of shit and he just kept being a piece of shit and we now we actually have a movie which is better than both of his movies by the way yeah i, I think that's a actually like a common starting point for documentaries is you shoot gobs and gobs of footage and then eventually a narrative starts to form from all that data and uh, if I remember right, like Tony was, I mean, he was a documentarian, and I think they like brought him on board to either manage the band or just document his uh, uh, Troy Duffy's rise to power in Hollywood. Um, but their relationship changes as things roll along, and you can tell that the early footage, like the tone of it, <laughs> started to change a couple years into production. But yeah, did, he's he's like a manager and documentarian. Who did the editing for this movie? It was edited by... I'm sorry, the first Boondock Saints movie. Oh, I'd have to look that up. Okay, um, I'm kind of curious about that. by Bill Durand. His, what else has he done? Uh, let's consult the IMDb. Because uh, while the movie was directed by Troy Duffy, uh, I don't think it was edited by anybody in his circle. I think he's the only one that had some kind of credit on the film yeah like i said um film production has a lot has tons of people working on it so even if you have one one rotten apple in there there's there are other people that can step in to to hammer things out i mean um, he did manage to get some pretty decent shots uh he filmed there was some on location shots in boston i believe i think uh, he he is primarily a television editor okay uh, a lot of yeah, tons of TV. But he's a he's working. Very, he's a he's a working editor okay. for sure. Okay. He so also yeah. worked on Boo Doc Saints too, and not another teen movie. <laughs> oh, okay. That's a fun one. 
<laughs> but yeah, mostly mostly television. That's how I kn- uh, one of the Academy Awards. Oh. Uh, I was gonna say he. Uh, not another teen movie is how I know the plot to She's All That. I've never seen She's All That, but I know the movie um, <laughs> because of that movie. So let's kind of just, you want to just talk about Troy himself? Man, uh, talk about like psychological profiling. Uh, <laughs> the whole time you're watching this, uh, it needs to be said, the, the format of this documentary is, um, there is a narrative structure to it, but mostly it's told in vignettes, just a, uh, kind of fly on the wall style where there's they're having production meetings and stuff and the camera's in the room and uh, using clever editing it makes it look filmic but really you can tell that we just had the camera running while a bunch of people were talking and then uh, cut around it and found different angles to to make it look filmic but um, the vast majority of the runtime of this movie is just Troy Duffy bullshitting (laughs) <laughs> it's just him talking and tons of shots of his friends just looking bored and like they're just tuning him out. <laughs> well, their body language. I wanted to get into that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Th- so he is an abrasive drunk. Uh, that's the best way to describe <laughs> it. He is a, an abrasive, Jeez. arrogant, delusional drunk in this movie. And his his hubris was built right, rightfully so. I mean apparently this movie was all the rage in Hollywood. Like, this script, I think maybe Weinstein was making it sound like a huge deal, so maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody, another studio might want to buy it. I don't really know, but he was building it up to be a really big deal, and this went straight to Duffy's head. I mean, (laughs) right there. He says some of the, like, we deserve everything that's coming to us. Like, he's he's just, he's mental. (laughs) It's crazy. Uh, I I mean, there's a lot of repetition of that. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you this, Kyle. And, and these are some references that I'm not sure if they resonate with you at all or as much as they do with me. But um, Catcher in the Rye. Holden. Yeah, Holden Caulfield. Yeah. And uh, Martin Eaton. I think it was a Jack London novel. <clears throat> I, do you know did, that one? I'm familiar with Holden Caulfield. I am not familiar great, great. with the, the latter. Okay, um, both of these characters, these literary characters, came to mind while I was watching Troy Duffy, and I'm I'm sure you probably actually grew up with like a dozen of Troy Duffy's. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I grew up with a few, um, probably not as much as you. Uh, it it's a interesting psychology. Um, see, Holden Caulfield has there's that repetition of calling people phonies, you know. Mm of not trusting anyone over 30 or whatever. It's just <laughs> just being a, a surly teenager that thinks they know everything and everybody's either out to get you or can't be trusted. And you got this massive chip on your shoulder that for the most part is probably unwarranted. And uh, Martin Eden is a story about like a, he's not homeless, but he's like just a, like a, a dirty sailor guy that he's a simple man. He's physically strong, but he's really ugly (laughs) and he's a simple man he's a simple blue collar man and he like meets this gal that's like pretty and high class and does nothing but read and get drunk and talk with high society folks and he becomes like obsessed with her and uh he goes on this journey of self-improvement uh to the point and he takes it so far to the point that he goes to these high society parties still a, a dirty ugly sailor man but he's more educated than anyone else in the room. 
and he starts to become indignant and resent all those people that he aspired to be a part of because he 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 comes from a different world yeah and so now he's like oh you guys are a bunch of phonies like all you do is get drunk and like pretend you're you know smart and and high society types but really you're just full of shit and i really got that vibe from troy duffy where it's like he's he needs that chip on his shoulder forever like even even when he's successful it it leads to him i don't know being suspicious of the people around him and you can't you can't take that like low class mentality out of him it's just always there mm-hmm. i get what you mean and, yeah I'm, I'm not doing a good job of articulating it but it's it, it's really interesting to hear him just prattle on and on about how like yeah we deserve this and like everybody else in this town like they didn't earn what they did the way i did it's like sure they did <laughs> you know like <laughs> well he has a uh, an interesting mindset when it comes to work now he was sitting in that office for about six months at one point he's talking to harvey uh, Harvey Weinstein on the phone and he's like listen I've been here for six months I'm six months into my year contract we can just say that I'm unhappy with this company and then see if anybody else wants to buy me yeah, and uh, yeah. in those six months I think he went to Boston got drunk he went to Mexico and got drunk uh, he may have scouted out some locations when he went to Boston probably uh, <laughs> but what else was he doing those first six months but sitting on his ass and getting drunk every yeah. night yeah so the, the, ed- the editing of the documentary did a good job of uh <clears throat> cutting from him saying like yeah let's get to work and then them going well, drunk. Uh, <laughs> the i mean the quality of his script which we'll get to uh because yeah, we'll get to that uh but his um his work ethic he's just like hey man i got fucking plastered last night you know i'm going to these meetings in my coveralls and nothing else and uh He's like, I get my shit done. You know, I got blasted last night. I got my shit done. You know, I'm I'm out here working. I'm like, yeah, Troy, but you're a director. It's not standing outside of a bar or serving people drinks or even physical labor. Like, you have to use your brain, and you have to be able to communicate with people, and you need to be able to work with people. This isn't, this isn't just working. This is a different kind of work. And when you're getting blasted drunk every night, it's going to be very hard to do that. Yeah, um, it's really interesting, his... Uh his attitude during those office scenes because uh, he he had <laughs> he had what a joe pesci likes to call a telephone tough guy vibe to him <laughs> oh very much where he's like he's the he's the loudest angriest dog in the yard if you get if you're talking to him on the phone yeah but face to face i don't know that that would be the case but um the tone of those scenes was really interesting because um <clears throat> One portion of his time in the office is devoted to him talking to a anonymous producer on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who, I guess, didn't want to be uh, exposed because uh, their voice is even ex- obscured in the documentary and they aren't named. Mm. Um, and when he's talking to this person, uh, he's very aggressive. That's when he's saying, like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to walk, blah, 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 blah. And uh, when he talks to Harvey Weinstein, though, he's uh, a little. He's a child. He's a child. Like, yeah, I noticed he, that. he he regresses and turns into just like a, a child who's basically pleading for like help. Do you think it was John Peters? <laughs> <laughs> that had his voice muted? Uh, it did, I don't think so, but that would have been amazing. Ugh, cause, <laughs> John I mean, Peters, the most amazing. I hope they make a documentary just about him. They, I feel like they will. I I hope so because his his scenes in the death of Death of Superman lives 
That yeah. was just amazing. Like, you I'm, get, I'm so glad I know who he is. <laughs> if you ever get the opportunity, Robert Evans documentary uh, based off of his autobiography, the kid stay the kid stays in the picture. It's mm. pretty. It's pretty interesting. It's pretty entertaining. Um, I didn't know they made a documentary. I mean, you told me about the book. It's. Uh, I've I listened to the book, the audio book, uh, which he narrates, and then the documentary is more or less the same thing. It's it's like it's clips and stuff. It's not like okay. a. It's it's a little different. I um, I just watched a documentary that was done in a similar fashion. It's called a uh, Generation Wealth. Oh. Uh, it's it's made by this lady by the name of Lauren Greenfield. That she's primarily a photographer, but uh, in putting together the the book, uh, I guess they they had a documentarian crew running around with her and they got enough footage to make a cohesive narrative and made a pretty decent documentary of it that fire that fire island or fire festival yeah yeah that, did you see that one i did that's yeah. i i really I, enjoyed I, that i had netflix for exactly one month and i did <laughs> and you got fact, that one in i got that one in because i was curious so uh he was given a one million dollar advance if i'm not mistaken yeah. for in this. 1997 his script was sold to miramax uh who um, this is conveyed to us in the documentary via, I think it's like a local news broadcast, maybe yeah. in L.A. or something. Um, and they do mention that uh, Miramax purchased the script and uh, just recently, I guess they cleaned up at the Oscars or something. So they were the talk of the town. And I uh, need to remember, too, that Miramax and, in fact, Harvey Weinstein, uh, I believe, gave us both Tarantino and Kevin Smith. Mm. Uh, in the years prior to Mr. Duffy's sale, Tarantino will definitely come up in the next podcast. The next uh, <laughs> absolutely, episode. yeah. But it needs to be said that, like, at, at this point, at 1997, uh, Harvey Weinstein had a very solid track record. Of very much picking angry young men. <laughs> well, Kevin Smith's not angry. No, Kevin Smith's just, a sweetheart. Just, just young upstarts, I guess. Yeah, because Tarantino was. I mean, I think uh, True Romance, he, he had sold the script by then, by the time Reservoir Dogs came out. or maybe I believe not. so, yeah. Um, but yeah, Kevin Smith was totally unproven, and Tarantino was talked about, but I guess didn't have any clout just yet. So he he had a reputation for picking well, like picking the right horse. Uh, so what came, what came yeah. of this was a little surprising <laughs> probably for him. <laughs> yeah, this was a bad <laughs> apple. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, one million dollars, and then did you happen to catch like his his stipulations? Uh, no, like, he wa- he wanted to direct it. I know that. Yeah, and he, he wanted his band to do the soundtrack. Correct. <laughs> yes, uh, his band oh. by the name of The Brood. The Brood. I'm not sure if that's a reference to the Cronenberg film. I mean, just I mean, it's also a wrestling stable. So. <laughs> well, why did was it that good? Was it that good of a script when they would have somebody who's never been to film school, never done any kind of work on a film, just direct a movie? I mean, Kevin Smith, Corks. I mean, Did he not go to film school? I don't think so. I mean, that's my suspicion. Hmm. If, he, if he did, then, oh, oh Kevin, maybe. <laughs> like, maybe you should have. I'm going to look into that. But, um... Yeah, yeah his, but his, I mean, Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino aren't abrasive drunks, so that was that was Harvey's boo boo. Yeah, well, I mean, especially if you know the the urban legend is that the 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 contract signing happened at the bar where he tends bar and occasionally bounces. Yeah, I guess I guess when it's slow. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, his contract stipulations were uh, $300,000 for him personally for his script, a $15 million budget for the film, The Brood will do the score, uh, he will approve casting and retain final cut of the film, that's quite a bit of power, uh, and Harvey Weinstein will help him to purchase the bar where he works for him. He must have had a lawyer sit in on this one. Uh, they do make mention of uh, something Morris Group that helped him negotiate it. Okay. Uh, I forget the I forget the exact William name Morris. The, William Morris. Yeah. Yeah. William uh, Morris. Was, so he did have representation, and I guess they did a pretty good job. So I mean, after I think after he goes to Boston. And his, I think his brother kind of mentions, like, yeah, I hope Troy doesn't get into trouble out there, get into things he shouldn't. I'm like, he's already in the things he shouldn't be doing. Uh, he should not be drinking. Um, but he, did you see this little cast part, the, the, little, the little party they had, um, mm-hmm. like a little barbecue? They're drinking Bud Lights, and it's the classic can, the classic can Bud Lights. I was, I was shocked. I didn't realize how old this was when I was like. Um, it's, it's really interesting watching this movie, and I'm kind of surprised this movie isn't like having a resurgence or something uh, because we're getting to that era of nostalgia now mm. we're watching every every second of footage in this movie i mean it's mostly shot on shittio from the most part <laughs> yeah, from what i can tell but it looks like uh you know a family a family video that like your mom or dad shot on a vhs camera and it's 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 cozy because i'm i have enough years of memories built up where it's like yeah i remember when memories looked like this and even the aspect ratio i think it's four by three so it's like built for your your old crt television not your flat panel so it's very much a 90s and early 2000s story you can smoke inside the bar you can smoke oh yeah people are smoking everywhere in this i fucking loved it i'm like oh my (laughs) goodness they're smoking everywhere i didn't not just in the bar everywhere yeah and of course when they go to france fuck that you know everywhere (laughs) Everywhere. (laughs) yeah Uh, at the party marky mark and john goodman are there like i think marky mark might be trolling him a little bit uh there maybe maybe. i think he was just a little bit i think he was probably saying some in case troy was to like just go off like he's saying like yeah no it's a really interesting script i mean it's probably gonna be a real good movie i'd like to work with him you know <laughs> yeah, but when, i'd like to work with him he's a, he's a brilliant guy i think he's got a lot of great ideas actually if they would have replaced him with norman reedus this would have been much i think this would have been a bigger hit um this is after this is the same year that boogie nights released so i'm not even sure boogie nights was out at this point i mean uh, it might yeah. have just been out in theaters yeah, um, I mean, if if Bookie Nights was in production at the time, he was trolling him. <laughs> um, like, working wanna, with Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm sure he had a different perception of how films are supposed to be put together. I want to put a pin in um, in Boogie Nights uh, for now until the next to the next episode. Um, okay. I, there's something specific from those two move from Boogie Nights and the Boondock Saints, which I find interesting. Um, Okay. But the point is that I think Troy was writing this script as he was drunk. Like, he was just at home after the bar. Like, he sat down and watched a movie and then fell asleep while watching it. And then he woke up the next day and was working on his script. Like, and this would happen and this would happen. 
but he didn't realize he was just taking things from that movie he had just watched. He's like, this is a great idea. I got to put this in. You know what? I'll just say it now. So there's a scene in that in uh, Boogie Nights. The I mean, it's and I, I'm sure you know which one. It's the very end where Marky Mark, you know, pulls out his prosthetic penis. Yeah. And uh, there's it is a prosthetic, ladies and gentlemen. There is a scene in Boondock Saints, which I've told you about, where there's a sidecock shot. Um, and I'll tell you exactly where it's at. I'll give you the timestamp later. Um, <laughs> uh, but I noticed it's on my it, phone that I'm using to call you right now. <laughs> I, I noticed it the most recent time I watched him. Like, we just saw sidecock on that guy. I'm like, why? What, what does that have to do with anything? And I'm like, oh, he probably got... Because to get that shot, you have to tell him, like, okay... We're gonna be doing a close-up shot on this man's penis. Like that's a, he he said it out loud. He's like, "This is what's gonna happen." I think he got drunk and watched Boogie Nights shortly after meeting Marky Mark. Or like or he, oh wait, no. If he was writing now, he didn't write it in the original script. That's what it is. He saw Boogie Nights after meeting Marky uh, Mark. He, he added it later. He, he got, added he it got later. Drunk. Yeah, he got drunk. After watching Boogie, Boogie Nights, Nights in the theater, he fell asleep on the couch and he woke up and he's like, "Oh, yeah, good new new scene, new scene. We gotta get that side cock in there." <laughs> so yeah, this will this will really take take his career to new heights. Uh, side cock shot that <laughs> slipped in there at the last second. <laughs> yeah, but like uh, John Goodman is there. They're, they mentioned a whole bunch of producers that worked for like there was people that worked for William Morris, people that worked for Miramax. Um, there was there's all kinds of people around there. Uh, yeah, I was surprised to see John Goodman there. I'm like, how the fuck? How are you not? Why are you sitting there talking to Mark? Mark, go talk to John Goodman. He would be a much better conversation. But <laughs> well, I'm sure they got to talking or something. But it just seemed like a like a production house meeting or something. Where it's yeah. like, yeah, oh, let's get out all the stars. There's probably going to be a camera there. Um, um his. His bandmates was something that I noticed. Uh, all of his friends, and specifically the bandmates, um, they all just fucking cower. Like, they all are just, when he's speaking, they just kind of keep their heads down or just kind of look off in the distance. Like, they never give him any kind of pushback on anything. Yeah. Ever. Uh, I don't know, maybe they're just, uh, like... Well, we need to know our place. Troy's the reason why we get got here. and Or if he's just mean if he's got like a nice he's manipulated them into being docile uh, I think he I think that's a big part of it manipulation okay. Um, a lot man like just fascinating fascinating psychology because there's a lot going on with this person that um, I, I would never want to know this person uh, I've, I've met people that seem similar to him but uh, he, he strikes me as, as someone who's accustomed to being the smartest dumb guy in the room oh yes yes at all at aggressively all times. And dumb stupid aggressively dumb but he's there, the smartest in a room full of dumb people yeah exactly he, and if that, you, that's a good if way you to put curate it. your surroundings if you curate your social circle to a certain extent you can you can always maintain that position you just oh, yeah. make friends with dumb people <laughs> and like even his brother uh who at one point uh when they're negotiating uh, a record contract um, one of the producers, it's the it's the guy that used to be part of the Doobie Brothers. I can't oh, remember yeah, his yeah. name. Um, he does an interview uh, with the documentary crew, like a one-on-one, and he says straight up that I don't know that Troy is brilliant. His brother Taylor is, as a musician. Um, and that 
jumped out at me because Taylor uh, speaks maybe twice in the whole movie. I don't know what he's, he sounds like. Yeah, he's very quiet, uh, and you can tell that uh, Troy has always been the older brother, and because he has this personality of being overbearing and just speechifying and being just this braggadocious piece of shit all the time, uh, I'm guessing it like muted him at some point because early in the film uh, we we get like a shot from an interior of a car where uh, the the film crew is riding around with Troy and his mom. Yeah. And he's rambling on and on about how he and Taylor are are having a dispute of some sort and Troy's like he's an idiot. I'm right, he's wrong. And you can see this playing out over decades of, you know, being brothers with each other where you have one brother who's older and never shuts the fuck up. And then another brother who's a brilliant musician, but has no voice outside of it. And you kind of see that with the other bandmates, where it's like, uh, I kept picturing these people as like kids on a schoolyard, like like at recess or something. And I I remember this, like I remember being a part of this, where like you'd have the one kid who, it's not a gang, but like you you get the crew together and like you just say he just like puts his hands together and says okay we're playing this today yep. and everybody just kind of falls in line because he's he's the one kid in the group that has an ego and knows what he wants out of the situation and he's he's the alpha who fit himself with the betas he he chose and yeah he weaned yeah, off yeah he he seemingly handpicked a, a bunch of people that will defer to him in most situations yeah. and again smartest dumb guy in the room so anytime yeah. he does these he has so many speeches in this movie. Oh, he does. Anytime he, he does that, like, if you or I were in the room and he was talking to us like that, we'd be probably going, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah. like, snickering in the back because, like, like the, the tone, his delivery is actually very good. He's probably, if, if you could tame his ego, I could see him being a decent actor because he seems to do a lot of performing in his daily life. He's an excellent guitar player. I was watching him, like, the scenes with him. I'm like, oh, he's a really good guitar player. Like, he's Well, I mean, his brother talented. does... Taylor, at one point, does say the band needs you. Yeah, um, I can see and that. And you get the sense that, yeah, maybe he is a good component to the band when he's committed to it, which is almost never after the movie gets rolling. But, yeah, his, his speechifying, it, it gets... The delivery's there, but the way he's... <laughs> What he's talking about, the concepts he's talking about, feel like like a game of Dungeons and Dragons or something. It's it's not quite based in reality. Where everything's heightened. Everything's like, yeah, we'll show them, and like, yeah, we're gonna win this war. And like, you you slip up once, you're gonna die. And it's 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 like a child kind of like pushing their imagination on top of reality. It's it's really weird. <laughs> Subconsciously, I think he was stepping on everybody else's heads to get ahead. Like he was like, yeah, I'm going to get my I'm going to bring the band along and everything. Like I'm going to get them signed, but when it came down to trying to like give these guys money, he's like, "No, you guys aren't getting any money. You haven't done anything." Cuz he's the one that negotiated it. I get the $300,000 for this. And he could have given some of that money to them. I mean, if he he could have split it up you know, between the bandmates, like that would have been a year's wages. Like they could have lived off that, uh, but I think instead he was just drinking it all away. Well, that's that's where that street mentality comes from. Uh, from having having spent a good chunk of your life as a bartender, as a bouncer, probably having Hollywood types come through your bar occasionally, 
and like wanting what they have, but at the same time not wanting to be them. It's a it's a very fascinating thing that I see happen all the time. Like even among my friends, like especially my friends who maybe don't have the most money in the world, where it's you have this mentality of yes, everybody wants to survive, everybody wants to succeed, but some there's a certain extent that people have to cut it off where it's like oh i don't like i want what they have but i i refuse to be one of them Mm -hmm. and i i saw that happening with troy duffy where even though he was very successful he still found ways to lash out at the people who probably helped get him there yeah uh because having a band having a support system even if they didn't put pen to paper they're your friends and they kept you sane from day to day and a more humble person, a, you know, a more stable person would have recognized that. That's like, hey, like we can we can all succeed together instead of lashing out and and viewing viewing these people as like hanger ons and, and people trying to take things away from him. Because at one point, yeah, when around the time when they're negotiating, I think their second record contract because the first one fell through. Yeah, uh, he he does give like a very candid statement direct to camera like. Like explicitly stating that he views the band as a, a bunch of freeloaders, basically. Yeah, his um his bandmates like they are a bartender's worst nightmare. Like the scenes where they're like drinking in the bar, like these guys are huge. These like they're all look like bouncers, and they're actually in that first move in the first Boondock Saints movie. They're the guys okay. that get into the fight um at the bar. Uh, but yeah, these guys are like falling over drunk like throwing stuff in the bars i'm like god damn it these guys are a nightmare uh but they're they i didn't i didn't really see them do anything like i yeah, don't they're see, very passive they're very passive but i mean like as far as the movies like they weren't really practicing like hey you guys need to work out a demo I'm like well troy's busy we can't really we can't really do that I'm like well what were they doing at at the, did they have jobs were they actually working I, like, I, just, I just couldn't figure out what they were doing. Ugh. Yeah, uh, it's not really clear if they're, if they're still working at the time or if like they received a stipend or something to you know, keep them going while they're supposed to be putting together their demo. But yeah, um, I mean, he's... Troy Duffy doesn't appear to be entirely in the wrong because it does seem like... It seems like a situation where maybe these guys weren't meant for this. Yeah, like they're probably a decent band. Like, like you said, he's a good, good guitarist, and apparently Taylor's an even better one. Um, but maybe they were just meant to play small venues and not have a record contract because the motivation's not there. Oh, they're a bar band. Like I can tell you right now, their yeah. music's awful. Um, which, <laughs> which, which is, I mean, that's that's if that's what you're meant for, that's what you're meant for. Not everybody's meant to sell out arenas and stuff. The Brood was not going to be selling out arenas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> good, good point. They were never going to be that caliber. They weren't even going to be Black Keys caliber. Like, they were just going to be... They were going to throw out an album. They might do some, you know, bigger venues. They might... Hey, they might do The Garden once. Uh, <laughs> they sold 690 copies. Oh, my God. It was so funny. And they go to that... Uh, that's... Ouch. <laughs> Well, that was even interesting too, because when they go to their, where they actually go to record their album, they're in that house. I think Keith, uh, the Rolling Stones recorded an album there. Um, who does he send down to the basement? He's like, you're gonna sleep downstairs. He doesn't uh, even say that. Well, there, I, 
I separated everybody by their like aesthetics. Hair? Yeah, by their <laughs> by hair. By their hair. Uh, he he was the guy that had a. Uh, uh, I mean, you can't look him up right now, but curly Raven, long hair. Raven from ECW, or I know Diamond Dallas about. Page. I know from you're ECW. Kind of the curly, kind of the curly hair. Yeah, the curly, yeah. curly like him. blonde, blonde highlights, and then uh, then there was like I forget his name it was like Gordon something or other. He looks like Tom Savini with long hair. Mm, yeah. Um, he was the one that would get blackout drunk. Like, they had that one candid shot of him literally, like, rolling on the floor. <laughs> like, he's doing a worm impression or something. It was bad. They were... And he was the one that looked like he was just not present most of the time. I mean, these guys are getting blackout drunk every night. And I'm assuming if these guys even do have jobs, like, they're not difficult. <laughs> they're not difficult they're... jobs. At the end of the film, we do see everybody go back to their their baseline and we do see that most of them have blue collar jobs like i think taylor's like doing handyman work or painting or something he's painting and, yeah and one guy's working a banquet or something and i think the the gordon guy is uh doing some sort of construction or something and then troy's just standing outside of a bar smoking a cigarette as a bouncer where yeah, as a he bouncer. where he belongs by the way <laughs> uh, <laughs> um not to throw things completely off track but uh I can't remember exactly where this occurred in the documentary. I think it was early, but um, <laughs> when uh, when Troy is in the casting process, he's I, they don't actually say who he's talking to on the phone, but he says, "I hate Keanu and Ethan Hawke." <laughs> oh yeah, let's get to the casting. Oh, Jake Busey like, makes it. You, dude. He's hanging yeah, out with Jake, Jake Busey, Busey one night. I'm like, oh, yeah. that's that's yeah. Like he fun. hung out with Jake Busey, Jerry O'Connell, Vincent D'Onofrio, Jeff Goldblum, and fucking Swayze. Well, he's building this script up. He's like, everybody in Hollywood wants to wants to work on this movie. Everybody should want to. Uh, I mean, what he thinks he has is is not even close to what he actually has in a script. Um, this is not Inception. <laughs> well, he he has such a strange, like, fragile ego because he vacillates back and forth between being like hyper confident and being like you just said. And then feeling that like everybody's out to get him, and and that I don't know, he he still believes in himself forever. Like he he has a gigantic ego, but he goes from thinking he's hot shit to thinking that everybody's trying to take his hot shit or something. I think the Keanu moment was where I'm like, Trevor has to watch this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, whoa, 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 let's not say things we can't take back. And uh, he wanted Kenneth Branagh apparently. But Brando was like, absolutely not, no. Oh, I think he said he he was told he was busy. I'm like, of course he's busy. He's, he's a Shakespearean can... actor. Fuck you. He's did also you think, a director. Did you think you were going to get Brana? Really? Yeah. No, I mean, it's a miracle. An absolute miracle that he got Willem Dafoe. <laughs> that's, what, that's the one that I was like... At the time when I watched it, I'd only seen Willem Dafoe in, like, Platoon. Uh, I don't think I'd see... Yeah, Spider-Man had... That first Spider-Man movie hasn't come out. hadn't come out. That yet. was two thousand two. It was it was getting there. Um, I'd seen Willem Dafoe in Platoon, and I didn't really know at the time that he was kind of a big deal. Um, oh yeah, no. My was, my mom was always really up on him, so I was always aware of him, even if I didn't see his movies. I had a couple of his movies. I watched his little GQ like the little thing where they go over their favorite like iconic roles or favorite roles and stuff like that. Um, and he seems like a really nice guy. I I could see him being kind of a, a set diva. I could see him maybe being a, a little bit of a dick about stuff. But he seems like a genuinely nice guy. Probably somebody that's really great to work with. 
Yeah. And there's one scene, the the scene where they're doing the shootout and um, Agent Smecker, played by Willem Dafoe, is about to have his, I think probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie. Uh, there, there was, was a, a fire fight! Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's going through, he's like, here's what's going to happen. Um, you do this, and he's like, okay, okay. And then he's just like, then what do I do after that? And he's like, after that, I say cut, and we're done. Like, he was genuinely asking for, you know... Direction. What? Direction. And <laughs> Troy's just like, don't fucking worry about it. It, it. The scene's done after that. Don't don't worry about it. And, you know, he's, he's you know... I didn't realize how short he was. I, like, I think Troy Duffy had uh, quite a few... Quite a bit of height yeah, on him. He's a... Uh, I think he is fairly short, but he's also wiry. Like, he's a jacked dude, man. I didn't know he was from, from theater. He did he did mostly um, a lot of theater work. Yeah, mo- most actors come from theater, but him in particular, strong he's, theatrical background. I think he still is. I think he still does quite a bit of theater. And that's why he's good. <laughs> it's um, it's like stand up comedy. You gotta you gotta get your hours in. You know. Yeah, he he says something at one point. I think Billy Connolly was the only one that was like all about Troy. He's uh, the only one that seemed to like him. Yeah, yeah. he talked him up quite a bit. Um, but I think that uh, Troy was probably st- here's here's another thing I, I have about uh, Troy is uh, one thing that annoys me is when Americans claim Irish heritage even though both of their parents were born in the U.S. with Preach. Irish last Preach. names. <laughs> Irish last names. I think that he was probably since it was a real Irishman, like a real Irish guy, he was probably just like oh, just in awe of yeah, him. He was and, just in awe of him. Like, yeah, just yeah. that's what, that's ass. how I saw it because yeah. their their interactions kind of had that vibe to it. And yeah, I, I like to tear some of my friends down every once in a while because um, if you're not aware, I'm half Japanese and half Caucasian, and in my experience, a lot of times the the friends of mine who really claim hard their irish heritage it's like dude i'm more irish than you (laughs) it's like my name's Hart. (laughs) you're not and you and usually i'm right (laughs) but um um, yeah on the in the documentary uh i was kind of surprised and actually i think it's for the best uh being as we're going to be watching it uh next week but um the documentary actually doesn't have much footage or content uh during the production of Boondock Saints. Uh, most of it is uh, the couple of years prior to production and a couple of years after. Um, I don't know if that was a rights issue because uh, I would imagine it was probably a closed set and you probably couldn't bring a documentary crew there every day. Um, and even if you could, maybe they wouldn't let them use the footage or something. But most likely. Um, yeah, the, the few scenes that we get, uh, Billy Connolly's very chummy with Troy Duffy. Um, and we don't get an actual interview with Willem Dafoe, but they via Billy it. Connolly, yeah, via uh, Billy Connolly. So through so through a, a layer of separation, um, uh, we're basically told that Willem is moody on the set and has tantrums and long silences, uh, which gives me the impression that Mr. Dafoe was probably not very happy uh, working on that film. I can't Turned out a very good be. performance. He did turn out a performance, uh, but yeah, I, I think being as he's like an actor's actor, uh, working with an inexperienced, probably not very professional Troy Duffy didn't sit well with him from what I can tell. And yeah, that, that one scene we had where we see Troy Duffy trying to give him direction or at least 
Willem Dafoe asking for direction. You can see, you can kind of see it on Willem Dafoe's face, where he's like, "That's your answer, okay?" Yep. Okay. <laughs> and it's interesting too, because he's he, from a visual standpoint, we can see him working out the scene. Yeah. Like he's he's giving like a a pre. He's there to work. He's working. Yeah. Absolutely. No, he's he's a working actor, and he's like giving a a pre-performance as they're you know setting up the lights and blocking out the camera movement and stuff uh so he's there to play but i don't know that everyone else is <laughs> what, um i just i was gonna say something uh i lost it oh oh, no. oh in his um in his gq interview he had nothing but nice things to say about like every performance he was talking about he's like it was tremendous working with this person even when he had an opportunity to say something bad he's like i won't say anything about them you know he, he seems like a really nice guy and he would be you know fairly easy to work with Did, wasn't this finished in 36 days they filmed this in like just a little over a month i think uh i'll go with you on that i didn't actually catch the the numbers but i think i caught I, that in the documentary it doesn't have the look or the feel of a movie that had an extended production time uh, um, so on time and on budget, man. That uh, there is something to be said for that. So yeah. if Mister if Mister Duffy did achieve that, that is an accomplishment. That's <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm. That's what I'm kind of after watching the documentary. I'm like, it's actually kind of an incredible movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like given who made it, <laughs> this I mean, is it, kind of a miracle. It's pretty impressive. Um, um, it does need to be mentioned that, uh, and I guess we forgot to go over this uh, prior to Boondock Saints officially going into production uh there was like a kerfuffle uh between troy duffy and harvey weinstein uh um, yes um i believe uh meryl oh she was the uh, co-president of production at miramax at the time um meryl po poster i think <laughs> i can't remember off the top, top of my could, head could um yeah apparently she had a problem with troy which I can't imagine why. Um, he he does mention offhand that uh, like she had a problem with his uh, public image and his lifestyle because I yeah. guess he. We only see a sample of it uh, towards the end of the documentary, but I guess he uh, not so good with the lady folks and uh, obviously. Oh, by the way, not um, like every other every other word out of this guy's mouth is fuck. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not much better, but you know. Uh, you yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you can complete a sentence without say fucking. <laughs> like, like, like when you're when you're searching for your words, your default go-to phrase isn't fucking. <laughs> if he was gonna play somebody from the movie Tombstone, he'd be Ike, not Doc Holliday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's the best um, way to put his intelligence. But yeah, what what basically comes of this, and I don't, I do not remember the exact details, is uh, the film loses pretty much all of its all of its financial backing and distribution, um, so they it doesn't have a home, uh, and so in over the course of trying to secure record contracts and secure distribution for the film and and like financials and stuff. Uh, Eventually, they they do obtain some form of sponsorship, uh, and it comes it comes at a cost of approximately like fifty percent of the of the expected budget that they had when when they first sold the script. So by the time Boondock Saints gets made, uh, it's made on a budget half that of what was initially offered to them. 
How much did Willem Dafoe make for it? I mean, because he's the only actual, like, actor who got paid, I would assume. Like, got paid well. Yeah, I mean, Billy Connolly is... He's not a household name. No. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure he got paid well, but not that well. Not that well. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, it may have been better for his image if he wasn't getting shithouse drunk every night. Every single night. Yeah, where these were apparently these guys that you're bumping like you're bumping shoulders with Miramax producers, people that are like, "Yo, uh, Merrill, you know that Duffy dude? Yeah, he was shit housed at that place again last night. Me and Rob went over there." Well, let me let me derail things for a minute here, Kyle. Go for it. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. Like, do you think Troy Duffy could exist today with the internet and social media? <sighs> That's okay. So. No, I don't think he could. I don't think so. And I don't, I don't think, think so. his script. I don't. I think. I don't think maybe, he could. I don't think he could sell his script today. No, I don't think he could sell his script either. I don't think that it was. I mean, we'll get into it next week, but I don't think that it was original enough that they would be like, "Yeah, this is going to be awesome." Uh, I don't think that he as a person would do, especially not now. Um, they wouldn't even entertain that for a minute. That would, he would definitely have a GoFundMe page for his movie. Well, I mean, I don't know what he's up to today, but he strikes me as somebody that would like shack up with the Proud Boys and oh. <laughs> <laughs> probably be be punching teenagers at rallies and stuff. That man had an MAGA hat for sure. I'm um, I'm sus- I'm suspecting that's the case, but yeah, I could totally sh- see him showing up at colleges and punching students and stuff. I hope I'll actually I'll or, contrib- or organizing those rallies or something. I'll contribute to his GoFundMe page if he if he wants to get a boondocks boondock saints three going i'll give him 10 bucks <laughs> yeah. I, I mean i'm kind of curious at this point i mean it is 2019 we are at another anniversary date kyle it, it's got to happen this year i mean i'm i'm totally down i don't think you could wrangle a single person from those movies except for maybe those three cops i don't think you could get anybody else <laughs> uh, you're not getting norman reedus definitely not getting norman reedus now that the walking dead he doesn't have to do that shit um <laughs> Sean Patrick Flannery, maybe. He, yeah, he he might do it. He, he probably got some house payments to make or something. That Irish bartender's dead, most likely. Uh, Rocco, he's probably dead too. Um, as Peter Fonda's in that second one. So I actually, real quick, I want to mention something. So Peter Fonda is in the second one, um, playing I guess one of the the main bad villain. I don't really know, um, but I was. <laughs> Listening to a podcast about the second Easy Rider, and it made me read up on the original Easy Rider, which I've never seen. Um, I didn't know it was directed by um, by Dennis Hopper, and it stars Dennis Hopper and um, Peter Fonda. But apparently, that movie did really well at the Canes, is that oh, Con, Con, uh, the Con Film Festival, and I believe that's where Troy takes the film. In the documentary, yeah, like it, yeah. it's pretty standard. That's um, what you do if you have a, a, a hot indie film is you, you go there to pick up distribution. You're looking for people to purchase your film and spread it. So I'm wondering if he threw in Peter Fonda or like maybe he. I'm sure he's seen Easy Rider and beats off to Easy Rider easily. Well, I wonder think, if he tried to of, get Peter. Think, think of the mentality of Easy Rider. It's that counterculture, like yeah. us versus them mentality. Peter Fonda himself, uh, unfortunately, seems to have devolved into a caricature of that concept. 
Um, it's a shame because he's a pretty good actor. <laughs> but um, <laughs> let me put it to you this way, Kyle: the late two thousands were an interesting time for Mr. Fonda because he was doing such films as Wild Hogs, Ghost Rider, and apparently Boondock Saints 2. So Eesh. I think Mr. Fonda was just in search of a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th- I think and maybe... those are just the ones that I rot- rattled off from memory. <laughs> it's like, I didn't look it up. <laughs> I'm wondering if he, if, if Duffy approached him because of Easy Rider and... I'm sure that's of... the case. Yeah. It's that old old world prestige where it's like, oh man, Peter Fonda, like I've seen his movies, I yeah. almost understood them. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He I'm sure he didn't. didn't. <laughs> oh man, he probably met him and he was like, oh shit, I thought you got shot at the end. Like, it's like oh, you're geez. alive. I thought you died, brah. So. What what else is there? I mean, this, this, <laughs> what this, else is this there? documentary is rich in content. Um, it it really is, but at the end of the day, it's it's mostly just an exploration of this person. Yeah, because like like we've said multiple times at this point, uh, the people around he's he surrounded himself with a bunch of silent stooges that just kind of jump whenever he says jump, and yeah. and really like let's it can't be stressed enough listening to him speechify to his group of friends and they they actually do a pretty good job of not showing not showing him drinking all the time um because i think that like taints it a little bit because i assume i assume that most of these these uh, speeches are delivered while he's a little buzzed well no they're they have him in his office drinking like he smokes yeah. in there but they have him drinking like i think it's morning i think that's that's hair of the dog yeah I, I think he's he's usually under the influence whenever he's doing this but when he goes into like speech mode it reminds me of being a little kid because i i caught myself doing that a couple times when i was a kid you know like you you get your friends around and you're like telling a story or like getting everybody in on a game or something and it really sounds like like a rally the troops kind of moment but it's delivered in such a way that it comes across as like juvenile and and in this bizarre way where it's he's not quite in touch with reality (laughs) no he's which is which is why i'm curious like what 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 was the the world well I'm sure the set was mostly just a bunch of crew members running around asking him questions and him saying, I don't know. And then they know. go do whatever they Fucking do. Fucking figure it like, out. Yeah. Basically. That's something that I want to bring up, too, is that he he holds a meeting at one point where he's talking. He's like, everybody needs to pull their weight around here. I'm like, what are they doing? Like, that's what maybe just the it was um, just negligence on the uh, on the filmmaker for the documentary maybe they just didn't really think about that but i have no idea like thank, why he's thank yelling you for at these bringing guys. that up because i had the same situation because that whole scene i was like i don't what even understand to... what he's talking about like i don't know what the subject of this discussion is yeah um i think it was uh like a the, the record contract fell through and he was blaming it on them or something like, I, I I never quite pieced it together, but yeah, he was he was condemning them and telling them that like yeah, if you don't pull your weight, you're you're fired. Yeah, you're fired as my as my friend. <laughs> as my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe like these guys are supposed to be what uh, project developers. So I mean, that's a loose term. I'm like, what do they what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed yeah, to? Yeah, it needs to be said that the people who made this documentary are in quite a bit of it. Yeah, uh, and one of the the more heated exchanges in the film is him having a, a 
one of like the dozen sit down meetings they all have in this movie uh and he's basically telling the two people who produced and directed this documentary that they aren't going to be receiving any of the profits for the record contract signing yeah uh because he felt that they didn't do anything to earn it and this tony montana guy and shit that's a hell of a name (laughs) um um, i don't know what his deal is but he he's like this passive little like gremlin man (laughs) um he for somebody who claims to be a producer or a manager he is so meek and so quiet like like you even see him in meetings with like record producers and stuff it's like this guy's negotiating deals <laughs> like he he has no personality or or, or or weight or strength to him he he comes across as so passive and the whole time he's being told that he's not gonna get paid for his hard work he's just I don't fucking think... sitting there in silence i think he fucked up he didn't get anything in writing i think that's might might be why i he think he's like, not good at his job no, <laughs> i don't think he was qualified i think he's just a friend of his that he's i like, think you're, you're right because yeah. the first time we meet him is at the bar and they're all just shooting pool with jake Busey. yeah <laughs> but um, yeah it, it was really shocking to see that where the whole time i'm like maybe troy duffy isn't wrong like maybe he does have some dead weight on him he might. <laughs> and it might be the people who made this fucking documentary <laughs> Whether they were dead weight or not, um, he's a real piece of shit. Uh, he's not a he's not a good person. And, no, he's not. And uh, when you see him in uh, like photo shoots in particular, there's a few of them in this documentary. His his ego really starts to come out. You can he, tell he's just he's just like taking it all in. There's a oh I don't know if you've ever watched the show, but Thirty Rock. Uh, you know the the Mayhem guy, the Allstate Mayhem, or yeah yeah yeah. Uh, I can't think of his name, but his name is Dennis Duffy. Uh, he's uh, <laughs> He claims Irish heritage. That's part of his character. He's like, yeah, I took the firefighting exam, and you failed it? He's like, yeah, it's totally biased against the Irish. But uh, he, <laughs> <laughs> he, at one point, he saves um, somebody from getting hit by a subway train, and they call him the subway hero. And uh, he's about to go down for his photo shoot, and he's like, like um, he's like, here, I have an outfit for you. He's like, nah, it's not going to work. I need you to get me a skull t-shirt, a leather jacket, and a pork pie hat. Go. <laughs> that's what I want. And I could just hear Troy Duffy doing the same thing. I want the long coat, sunglasses. No, I will not shave my five-day stubble. I will not. Yes, that's what I want. Yeah, I'm, I'm again, I, I keep, for some reason, associating Troy Duffy with the Proud Boys or something. Like, I'm yeah, picturing him, I'm picturing him wearing a, a vest and, yeah, like a, ironic 1800 style mustache and hat or something yeah i can see that lots of celtic tattoos too why does he dress like the characters or I, I don't get it like i'm assuming that's how he dressed before so like, i'm gonna have him dress like me I'm because that's that what dumb cool. people do when they write scripts they project i mean it's, it's wish fulfillment you know like he he probably wishes he could you know go around killing people without consequence he probably wishes he was full full-blown irish american instead of in name only i would say that he's probably well he's racist sexist and maybe a little xenophobic there on top uh just uh, yeah, there, off there's the a first line script. in here that uh there's a line in here that uh he says look how jewish they're being about it <laughs> in, in regards to record contract negotiations i was like jesus uh, trevor <laughs> there's a camera running sir <laughs> trevor let's be honest this was in 1997 to 98 
if that's as far as he's gonna go, that's not that bad. Like you it's can, not that bad. I you I can get, get a you can oh you can kind of get away with that now. And yeah. someone like, oh, that's a little risque. Then I was like, no, that's just that was pretty standard. <laughs> um, I'm not uh, I'm not sure what else to touch on without like getting into the movie. I definitely I definitely have ideas of of how I want to well, like like contrast the other two movies. Sexuality is one I don't think has come up, and I, I would like to talk about with those two they, movies. They only, like I said, it, it is mentioned that he like has a not very good relationship with the opposite sex. Um, in the documentary, we only catch a glimpse of it. It's only like a couple shots here and there towards the very end. By the way, his one friend, uh, CB, is he... Is he like not like maybe the biggest scumbag ever? <laughs> Which one is he? Is he the assistant or He's the tall guy with the glasses. That Oh gosh. Yeah, he I starts know what you're about he now. starts to occupy a larger presence in the film towards the end. You're right. Yep. And it kind of feels like like he got promoted as a friend or something. <laughs> Going up in well, the ranks. Because as he becomes more and more estranged from the band, all of a sudden the CB guy starts to show up in more and more scenes and even accompanies him to con. Sounds like Bohemian Rhapsody to me. Oh, uh, well, the an- the quote unquote antagonist in that film, the the evil gay man with the yeah. mustache, is that a real person? I'm I don't curious know. because not, if that oh, is yes, a real is. person, is. I believe it is his, a real person. His his living relatives must be just like, what the fuck? You are a piece <laughs> of shit. I know. <laughs> like, I don't know if he's still alive, but like his the people who survive him must be just like. Oh my god! Well, the, I think actually there's a few things we can touch on about the movies that I can kind of gather from this documentary. Um, there's definitely he definitely seen a Tarantino movie because he's dropped some in bombs in that uh, at least the first one. I don't, I can't remember about the second one, but the first one definitely. Um, and Agent Smecker is gay, and there's definitely some other f bombs in there. A uh, few times a Freudian slip. Um, it's said straight out right and. And Paul Smecker is a gay character. He's working in a bar in West West Hollywood, which I believe has a fairly large gay population. Like it's fairly, fairly well known gay community there. And I'm wondering if that kind of bled into him writing the script. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's part. That's like one of the perks of working as a bartender is you you get to meet characters. So if you do have a, a writer's talent and instincts, you can get material. Like you, you will meet interesting people that come through those places. And I'm sure like mo- most writing of fiction comes from real life experience, at least if you're doing it right, or at least research. And I could totally see, you know, some of these characters being like a pastiche of, of previous encounters in his life or previous episodes, I guess. He almost does a good job portraying a gay character in a movie in the 90s. Almost. There's definitely some problems <laughs> with the character. But but uh, he's portraying a gay character in a power like a in a position of power and it's not really played for laughs and he's actually he's the smartest one in the room. What which, is it? He wants a bagel with his coffee. Yeah, I want a or bagel. He might want he might want a bagel with his coffee. He, he, that, that was the one line that jumped out at me. He definitely has some mannerisms in there that might be overplayed at the request of the director. But <laughs> I'm like he almost like I'm actually gonna I'm I think I'm gonna watch the movie after this. Uh, and oh just, wow! I take my notes and like oh, let's I'm kind of curious now. 
He does. There is one really funny line in that movie. I'll give it to him. There's one really, really funny line. Um, but I'll, I'll mention it next week. <laughs> well, uh, if I can, I'll, uh, I'll send you a link to the actual screenplay. And maybe you can maybe you can check to see if it was Defoe or if it was Duffy. He might. That, that's a very good possibility. It could have been like, I'm not saying that. I was about uh, Troy. To I will not be saying that. You want um, me to do what? <laughs> you know, I'm something of a, an actor myself. <laughs> um. Oh yeah, trench trench coat mafia photo shoot. By the way. Oh gosh, yeah. Uh, the when they finally released their album for, for the brood, <laughs> which looks awful. It looks awful, and and uh, they foolishly put the Boondock Saints on the on oh, the label. Gosh. Like they, it's not a like a self-titled album or anything. They actually just plastered the Boondock Saints title on it in the hopes that the cross-promotional synergy will get them more than six hundred and ninety record sales in six months. <laughs> um, but yeah, the photo shoot they do. Uh, I think it was in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, so you had Columbine and the Matrix. Like right around the time. <laughs> good timing, guys. <laughs> good timing with oh, the trench coats geez. and the Rottweilers Wait, or whatever. Was Matrix ninety seven or ninety nine? I think it was ninety nine. Okay. It was. I think it was sh- not shelved, but delayed because I remember like some of the earliest trailers for that, and it was probably like early ninety eight or something. It didn't come out until ninety nine or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, that trench coat mafia photo shoot. I was like. Pfft. Might want to sit on that for a minute, guys. Yeah, let's, uh, <laughs> let's let it breathe a little bit. Yeah, you know? this yeah, is a little yeah, too yeah. soon. <laughs> but oh. yeah, um, thank you for having me watch this documentary. By the way, because uh, movies about making movies may be my favorite genre. Like, Death I of Superman Lives, the Doctor Moreau one. Uh, I think the Death of Superman Lives is the most heartbreaking one for me. Oh. um... Yeah, I, I could see that. Uh, I mean, because that did, it did look like a promising film. Um, I think it would have been a lot of fun. It'd be it would be a cult classic. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I need you to watch American Movie at some point. Uh, I saw a lot of parallels between this and that. Um, American Movie is pretty heavy and depressing at times, but in terms of examining a person's psychology, like a a wannabe filmmaker very fascinating and very enlightening um it's it's about a guy i think from wisconsin uh that uh, mark borchart is his name Mm. um he's not a man of means he comes from humble beginnings he did go to some form of film school and when you actually do see his product he's competent he's just a shithead that has has too much involvement in his project if you were to have him just do the lighting or just do the cinematography, uh, he'd probably be very good. Like, not amazing, but competent. But because he has to do everything, and he's surrounded... Again, smartest guy... Smartest dumb guy! (laughs) Um, He surrounds himself with friends and family to serve as his production crew and stuff. And it it hurts the production, especially since he has to do all the technicals as well. And it results in a lot of human drama that's really fascinating to watch. strong recommend also there's a movie called uh, kung fu elliot that to this day i don't know uh, i don't know everything about it i'll just say that much um it's something you need to see 
and then come to your own conclusion. Gotcha. But I sought it. I sought it out a few years ago, and I was so glad that I did because just the concept of it, uh, a document, a documentary about a wannabe movie star from Canada that fancies himself an expert martial artist when in actuality he's absolute garbage oh, oh yeah and he awesome. has a chinese girlfriend by the way <laughs> that sounds great. a chinese girlfriend who he lives off of <laughs> like financially um it's a it's an amazing little film uh i'm so glad that i watched it i in fact i might end up buying the blu-ray because it seems to have dropped off of amazon prime hmm I wonder if maybe had Troy just sold the script and not been a part of the movie, it would have been better for him. Absolutely. I think that would have been the wise thing to do. Or Well, like, I mean, you, look look what he did with his six months in an office. Nothing. Nothing. Did absolutely nothing. Nothing. So if, if he had just sold the script and gone back to doing what he did, or at least, you know, just burned all of his money, yeah. that would have been the end of it. Yeah. But, but instead, he created obligations for himself well if he would have yeah if he would have sold the script and it would have been a hit they could have gotten some since he was he had never he's never directed a film nor has he any experience with film in general uh other than watching him when he's drunk uh (laughs) if they had done that he might have been able to like hey that first one did awesome we're gonna pay you even more money to write a sequel i'm actually already working on it with you know with that money or you know whatever he could have set himself up in the long run to no, I mean, he 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 had it all for just a couple seconds there before he decided to negotiate and play hardball and ask for too much because uh so much of working in hollywood in particular is is about who you know and your reputation and he had both until he started working because <laughs> he had harvey weinstein's blessing and then he had he had the studio's support and then he lost both and if you lose both that that kind of leaves you on the patreon or the indiegogo route i guess <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I i i actually kind of would like to see a boondock saints 3 just to see oh, yeah. it Oh yeah, and I do too. I, and I need him to make it too. Oh yes, I need him to make it. <laughs> I really do think he could probably get Sean Patrick Flannery, but I, I can't imagine he would get Norman. He, might, I don't know. I don't think he could. I don't think he'd get Norman Reedus. He wouldn't. I don't it. think so. He's too big now. He's he's like international famous because you need to remember that. Like I think Walking Dead screens in Japan and around the world. Yeah, I've heard that's the biggest deal show that's not that great. Like, apparently yeah, it's, it's that's not a good, very... that's a good summary. <laughs> kind of like Big Bang Theory, how those are, like, the highest paid uh, TV actors, and that show sucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've only watched a couple episodes. But, You're fine. Um, it, it just looks like every one of those uh, two and a half men, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who produces all of them. He's the Dick Wolf of uh, sitcoms. <laughs> sitcoms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, like, he, he cranks out marvel good product it's like it's adequate it'll tide you over until next week you won't hate yourself for watching it but it won't knock your socks off (laughs) well did you have anything else to comment on troy duffy no uh but we got another two weeks um yeah yeah this is the uh first entry in in what i'd like to call our evening an evening with troy duffy if you will and, yes, uh, this is an evening with Troy Duffy. Uh, yeah, welcome to an evening mm-hmm. with Troy Duffy. You should definitely watch this documentary. Um, if you haven't seen the Boondock Saints movies, totally fine. You can watch it 
without seeing those movies, but you'll probably want to after you've seen. I want to now. I do sure. too. I want I've, to I've see. seen the first one a long time ago, but I barely remember it. So I'm kind of excited to take a look at it with, with this new insight <laughs> into how it was made. Uh, so yeah, next week we'll be covering the Boondock Saints, uh, and then I suppose the following week we'll be covering Boondock Saints two, and that will be the entirety of Troy Duffy's filmography. Um, so that being said, uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Uh, bye. <laughs>